Better Banking is getting an unbelievable 0.99% APR rate on a home equity line of credit from First Commonwealth Bank to turn your bathroom into your, wow, I love this bathroom, bathroom. 0.99% introductory APR for six months that adjusts to a variable rate based on Wall Street Journal prime rate plus or minus a margin with a minimum rate of 2.99% and a maximum rate of 18%. Offer subject to change or withdrawal at any time. Call 1-800-711-2265 for details about credit costs and terms. Equal housing lender, First Commonwealth Bank, member FDIC. Lowe's Spring Fest is here. We've got $10 off gallon cans or $40 off five-gallon pails on select interior and exterior paint, stains, and coatings. And appliance special values plus free local delivery on appliances $3.96 or more, in-store and online. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Offers valid through 414. Actual paint sizes are 116 to 640 fluid ounces. Exclusions apply. See Lowe's.com slash rebates for rebate terms and conditions. For appliances, restrictions and additional fees may apply. See Lowe's.com or store for details. U.S. only. True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, before we get started with today's episode, I have a couple patrons to shout out. Thank you to Thesla and Ben for joining the Crazy Cat Person tier. For more information on our Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecatlawyer. And with that, let's head back to Oregon for today's case. This case takes us back to 1967 in the town of Corvallis, home of Oregon State University. Dick Kitchell, better known as Dickie, was a 17-year-old high school senior. Dick was an only child whose parents were divorced. Dick's mother moved to Washington, so Dick ended up living with his father most of the time. Dick's father, Ralph, remarried several times, the most recent of which was early 1967. Ralph owned a shoe store in downtown Corvallis. From everything I read, Dick and his dad really didn't get along with each other. That's why Dick often went to parties and got drunk, to escape his home life. Dickie was very sweet and very likable. He had friends from all social groups and was well-liked by these friends. On the night of October 11, 1967, Dick attended a party at the home of Paul and Judy Everts. Dick was good friends with Judy's younger sister, Dawn. The Everts often bought alcohol for the teens in the neighborhood and threw parties at their house frequently. Dick attended the party that night and never came home. 
His father and stepmother initially shrugged off Dick's disappearance, and they weren't really worried until Dick failed to show up for school. At that point, Ralph filed a report with police, who considered Dick a runaway. You see, police had been called to and responded to the Kitchell home from multiple calls, various fistfights between Ralph and Dick. Investigators didn't have a lot to go off. Dick's father and stepmother didn't know where he had been or who he was last with. Ten days later, on October 21st, two young teens were out fishing and found the body of Dick Kitchell face down in the Willamette River. Both of Dick's eyes were bruised. He had been hit in the nose. There was blood around his ears and mouth. He had a three-inch wide bruise on his throat, and his larynx was crushed, causing him to suffocate. There was no water in Dick's lungs or stomach, which told investigators that Dick was dead before his body was dumped in the river. Dick's body had been in the river for 10 days, so it was too contaminated to collect any forensics. Not to mention, this was 1967, so DNA wasn't a thing. When Ralph was brought to identify the body of his son Dick, he showed little emotion. According to Dick's friends, Dickie had three prized possessions, his Acme cowboy boots, his Pacific Trail tan suede jacket, and his baby blue 1955 Chevy. But when Dick's body was found, he was only wearing the cowboy boots, jeans, and a gray Oregon State t-shirt. His jacket was nowhere to be found. Police wanted to know where the tan suede jacket was and why it wasn't found with Dick's body. Dick's friends had a lot more information on Dick's last night alive. Police interviewed one of Dick's girlfriends, Judy Appleman. She was a grade lower than Dick and was described as an all-American teenage girl. She was a cheerleader, a member of the rally dance committee and the fire squad, and she was on student council. Judy told police she had a brief relationship with Dickie. She wasn't actually allowed to date, which was fairly common for the time, but Dick was allowed to come over to her house. Judy last saw Dick on October 11th, the day he went missing, in the parking lot behind the high school. She couldn't provide any other details for investigators. Detectives quickly turned their attention to Paul and Judy Everts, the couple who threw the party on the night Dick was last seen. As I mentioned before, Dick was friends with Judy's younger sister Dawn, so he would often attend a party at the Everts' home. Paul told police that Dick was drunk when he arrived at the party, where more than a dozen teenagers and a few men in their 20s were at. Paul then told officers that Judy and Dick got into some kind of disagreement where Dick told Judy to, quote, get fucked, end quote. Of course, this altercation didn't sit well with Paul. He told detectives that he had told Dick to go back and apologize to Judy, which he claimed Dick did. However, other witnesses who were at the party that night told investigators that Dick never came back into the house to apologize to Judy or for any other reason. From their interviews with the Everts, police learned that Dick had been given a ride home from another partygoer, Doug Hamblin. Hamblin was 23 years old, divorced, with a two-year-old daughter. He had a troubled history. He lost his sight in his right eye as a child due to a broken beer glass, and he was described as mean and abusive by more than one ex-wife. 
Hamblin told police that on the night of the party, he offered to drive some of the teens home around 12 a.m. This included two teenage boys named Marty and Mel and Dick Kitchell. Hamblin took Marty home first because he had a midnight curfew. Mel was dropped off next. After that, Dick moved to the front seat of Hamblin's car, but he refused to tell Hamblin where he lived. Dick told Hamblin to just keep driving because he didn't want to go home. Hamblin eventually pulled his car over near the state employment office. This is when he told police he pulled Dick out of the driver's side of the car because the passenger door was broken in order to make Dick get out of his car. Hamlin told investigators he last saw Dick walking south from the employment office. Hamlin then returned to the Everts' house around 1.30 a.m. As police interviewed Hamblin, they took note of his demeanor and his appearance. Hamblin didn't have any visible bruises or scratches on his fists, and he agreed to take a polygraph test. One thing Hamblin offered up without being asked by police was that he found a coat in his car on October 12th, and because of the small size, he gave it to a nine-year-old neighbor. He offered to get the coat back from the neighbor and bring it to police. This struck police as sort of odd because while they were looking for the jacket, they didn't understand why Hamblin would have just given it away so quickly, rather than trying to track down the potential owner, which was likely Mel, Marty, or Dick. Investigators also decided not to question Hamblin as to why he returned to the Everett's house after he dropped the teenage boys off. Based on the story they had from Hamblin, police believed Dick was likely killed on the night of the 11th and then immediately dumped into the river. Detectives canvassed the Kitchell neighborhood as well as the area near where Hamblin said he dropped Dick off. No one heard anything out of the ordinary near Dick's house, and there were no witnesses or any physical evidence in either location. There were no reported sightings of Dick after Hamblin forced him out of his car. On October 22nd, investigators interviewed Marty Tucker. Tucker told police that there had been a scuffle on the night of the party between Paul and Dick, but no blows were exchanged. Tucker also told police that Dick didn't apologize and never went back inside the Everett's house. When police spoke with Mel Plemons, the other teen in Hamblin's car that night, he also told them that Dick and Paul had issues. Specifically, that Dick was mad at Paul prior to the night of the party on October 11th. Other witnesses at the party confirmed that some kind of altercation took place between Dick and Paul. Dick's funeral was held on October 24, 1967. Six of his closest friends were pallbearers. Dick was laid to rest in the Twin Oaks Memorial Garden Cemetery in Albany, Oregon. Police continued to be baffled at the response, or lack thereof, by Ralph, Dick's dad, when it came to Dick's murder. Many people in the Corvallis area felt Ralph wasn't upset or sad about his son's murder. Police saw no signs of grief, and Ralph never asked police for status updates on the case. He also declined to have Dick's clothes and boots returned to him. It soon became a commonly held assumption that Ralph had something to do with Dick's murder. Regardless of Ralph's lack of interest in the case, police continued their investigation. They interviewed Diana Eddins, who spent Labor Day weekend with Dick. This weekend was their second date, and Dick was arrested for driving drunk and crashing his car into a row of mailboxes 
some trees, and a fence after swerving to the wrong side of the road. Eddins and Dick were both taken to the police station. Eddins remained friends with Dick after the arrest, but he was no longer allowed to call her. Police also interviewed a classmate of Dick's named Terry Guerin. Guerin told police that parties at the Everts were quote-unquote word-of-mouth events. He described Dick as a quote drunk feisty little guy end quote and said the party was crowded that night. Guerin also remembered Dick swearing at everyone probably because he was drunk but also because Dick was known to like fighting. Investigators centered their focus around Paul and Judy Everts Doug Hamblin, and Dick's father, Ralph. Paul Everts and Hamblin were given polygraphs, along with Marty Tucker. The polygraph examiner recorded that Tucker was a, quote, nervous young man, end quote, who became somewhat agitated when discussing the events of October 11th. Ultimately, the examiner concluded that Tucker's stress and vagueness during the exam was due to his age and, quote, not wanting to admit that he'd been drinking, end quote, while underage. When it came time for Paul's polygraph, he told the examiner that he was really nervous. He said he saw Dick and Hamblin get into a fight on the front porch, but didn't know what it was about. Paul claimed he couldn't remember whether or not Dick came back inside his house after the altercation with Hamblin. The polygraph examiner's notes indicate that Paul was, quote, quite friendly, intelligent, and seemingly candid, end quote. The examiner felt Paul was truthful when it came to answering the specific questions about dumping Dick's body in the river and whether he had hit Dick in the face. Paul had answered no to both questions. The polygraph examiner's notes about Hamblin indicated his results were inconclusive so police would definitely be paying him another visit in the near future. Ralph Kitchell was interviewed by police on a few different occasions throughout their investigation. He last saw Dick on October 11th, but didn't report Dick as a missing person until October 16th. Again, this struck police as odd. Nearly an entire week went by before he seemed to notice that his son was nowhere to be found. Ralph claimed that he wasn't worried about Dick until he failed to show up for school. Apparently, Dick often went to the beach with his friends, since it's only about an hour or so away from Corvallis, and he spent a lot of time away from home. So, evidently, it wasn't unusual for Ralph not to see his son for longish periods of time. The Corvallis police station was about a block away from Ralph's shoe store, so detectives would make frequent pop-ins. One detective told Rebecca Morris, quote, Ralph didn't like the police. He was upset with them for not solving Dick's murder right away and not ruling him out. But he wasn't sad. Police didn't know what to make of Ralph and couldn't rule him out as a suspect, end quote. Not only was Ralph not displaying any real sadness or any emotion about Dick's murder, police had been told that Ralph had a temper and a reputation as a bully and drunk. There was a long history of police calls to the Kitchell home related to fights between Ralph and Dick. Dick was Ralph's only child. Ralph had married Dick's mother, Joan, in 1950 when Joan was four months pregnant with Dick. After the two divorced, Joan moved back to Washington. Ralph then married his second wife, Irene, before divorcing her, and then he was on third wife, Sylvia, by the spring of 1967. 
instead of taking the suspicion off of himself, Ralph and his wife Sylvia hired an attorney. They told police that their attorney advised the couple against taking any polygraphs. But when detectives contacted their attorney, he okayed them taking polygraphs as long as he was given a copy of the results. Ralph was pissed when he found out this information, and he told police, quote, Okay, I'll take that damn test for once and for all and get you off my back. I'm tired of being accused of this crime, and after the test, maybe you'll start looking in the right direction and leave us alone because we don't have anything to do with Dick's death, end quote. It was quickly becoming clear to investigators that solving Dick's murder depended on their ability to answer one question. Did Dick make it home on the night of October 11th or not? Hamblin agreed to take a second polygraph exam. He brought Dick's jacket to the station with him. Detectives taped the interview where Hamblin admitted he may have wrapped his arm around Dick's neck, causing the bruise to Dick's throat while he was trying to get Dick out of his car. But Hamblin swore Dick was alive when he drove off. Again, some of Hamblin's responses appeared deceptive. The polygraph examiner's report notes that Hamblin wasn't deceptive regarding the statements about his knowledge of Dick's death, but it did appear that Hamblin wasn't completely truthful in regard to some of his answers for the control questions. Unfortunately for investigators, polygraph results are inadmissible in court, and there wasn't any actual evidence to justify arresting Hamblin. Though in addition to the inconclusive and deceptive polygraph results, Hamblin also left Corvallis shortly after Dick's murder to visit his father in Port Angeles, Washington. He did eventually come back to Corvallis. Detectives interviewed a few more witnesses who either interacted with or saw Dick on October 11th. Bob Wadlow drove Dick to the Everett's house and planned to pick him up later that evening. So why didn't he? Bob told police he came back to the Everts between 10.30 and 11 p.m. and was told that Dick was having a good time and would get a ride from someone else later that night. Police also spoke with Pat Hockett, the Everts babysitter. She lived with the couple and took care of their daughter while they were at work. Hockett also had a second job at Seton's, a local restaurant. Hockett told police she was at the Everts' home at the beginning of the party on October 11th but then she left for a shift at Seton's from 11 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. When she got home from work, the Everts and Doug Hamblin were alone in the house, talking. She didn't remember seeing Dick at the party, but she told police two important tidbits. Dick never took his coat off except to fight someone, and Doug Hamblin had a violent temper. Police had one more person they wanted to interview, Dick's stepbrother, Roger Bix, which is not his real name. According to Rebecca Morris's book, Bix had a, quote, checkered past and a violent temper, end quote. Bix had been expelled from school for non-attendance, and when investigators ran a background check on him, they found out he had a record in Cottage Grove for shoplifting, disturbing the peace, drunkenness, minor in possession, and, quote, pushing a reserve deputy around, end quote. When Bix was interviewed by police, he told them there were frequent arguments between the brothers, but he had been hunting on October 11th and didn't return until around 1 a.m. Police found no evidence Bix was in Corvallis or at the Everett's party that night. Bix took a polygraph, and the examiner's notes state there were no indications of deception. 
investigators felt confident they could rule Bicht out as a suspect. In March 1968, Doug Hamblin took his third polygraph test. Once again, the examiner felt Hamblin was deceptive and withholding information. This examiner added one more tidbit that other examiners hadn't previously noted. This examiner said that Hamblin was quote-unquote probably responsible for Dick's death. But again, there was still no physical evidence linking Hamblin to Dick's murder. Unfortunately, that's where the case stayed for many long years. Eventually, cold case detectives were assigned to review Dick's case, but sadly, all of the evidence was poorly preserved. The original police report had never been filed, interview tapes were missing while others weren't transcribed, photos from the crime scene weren't developed, and the film was missing. On top of that, cold case detectives learned that Dick's clothes were also missing, and there were several loose ends that police had never looked into back in 1968. Thankfully, detectives did have all of the polygraph results as well as the prior detective's written notes. In 2008, investigators met with John Lee, again, not his real name. Lee contacted police in the 70s with a possible tip. He lived across the street from Hamblin's first wife. She told Lee on more than one occasion that Hamblin had confessed to killing Dick. Although detectives were able to speak with Lee, they couldn't verify any of his story because Hamblin's ex-wife died in 1990. In 2011, detectives learned Hamblin had died of a heart attack at his Corvallis home in November of 2008. He was 64 years old. At that point, cold case detectives closed their investigation. They stated the investigation had been closed because the district attorney declined to prosecute based on the death of the presumed offender, Doug Hamblin. Investigators told the public no further investigative efforts would be spent on the case. But questions still remain. Did Hamblin really kill Dick? And if so, was it Hamblin's intention to murder Dick? Or was it an accident? There was no evidence, no crime scene. Detectives never found out where Dick was killed. And there was no blood on the street near the employment office or near the, where the body was dumped by the river. No weapon was found, there was no confession, and no evidence was found back in 1967 when investigators searched Hamblin's car, though he had a few days to clean out the car by the time police got around to interviewing him. Investigators appear to feel confident that Doug Hamblin was either involved with Dick's murder or actually was Dick's killer. Unfortunately, we'll never know for sure due to Hamblin's death and the lack of evidence. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecatlawyer to view our available tiers. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.
Banking is getting an unbelievable 0.99% APR rate on a home equity line of credit from First Commonwealth Bank to turn your bathroom into your, wow, I love this bathroom, bathroom. 0.99% introductory APR for six months that adjusts to a variable rate based on Wall Street Journal prime rate plus or minus a margin with a minimum rate of 2.99% and a maximum rate of 18%. Offer subject to change or withdrawal at any time. Call 1-800-711-2265 for details about credit costs and terms. Equal housing lender. First Commonwealth Bank. Member FDIC. Weekends aren't the only time to hang out with friends. Mountain trails, bluegrass hills, and miles of shoreline await. Break free in Kentucky's wide open outdoors. There's no better time and no better place than the Bluegrass State. Stay close. Go far. Travel safe. Plan your trip at KentuckyTourism.com.